Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Okay. By round of applause, who's never seen me before? That, this is raising your hand. This is round of applause. Yalla, one more time. We're gonna, by round of applause, who's never seen me before? Okay, this is good. All right. So my name is Maysoon Zayed, and I am not drunk. But the doctor who delivered me was Yuksuf Amra. So as a result, I have something called cerebral palsy. Does anyone else have cerebral palsy? Anyone? Do you? Because you have to leave if you do. I like being the only special one. Okay. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what cerebral palsy is, in my case, it means I shake all the time. So I'm a little bit Shakira Shakira and also a little bit Muhammad Ali. And I don't want anyone in this room to ever feel bad for me because I got 99 problems and palsy is just one. In the oppression Olympics, I would win a gold medal. I'm Palestinian, I'm Muslim, I'm a woman of color, I'm disabled, and Donald Trump is my president. <laughs> if you don't feel better about yourself, maybe you should. Um, I want to tell you guys a little bit about my background because I think it's important that you know where I come from. Um, my father is Al-Hajj Musa Zayed. Zayed's like a popular name here, so rock on. Um, and my mother is a doctora Ribhiya Sobah. My mom looks like Julia Roberts, and my father looks like Saddam Hussein. <laughs> and the way that they met is absolutely beautiful. It's such an incredible love story, and I like to share it because when people think of Palestinian or when people think of Muslims, they don't think of romance, they think of rocks. So I like to talk about how my parents met um, their first cousins. <laughs> yeah, my father swears that the first time he saw my mother, he knew she was the one. And I was like, Daddy, how did you know she was the one? And he said, your grandfather, he told me. <laughs> and then my mother, she has a cute pet name for my dad. She calls him her husband. And <laughs> when I was born, I was the youngest of four girls. And my parents didn't think that God would be so great as to bless them with another female child. So when I was born, they had only picked a name for a boy. Very original name, you've probably never heard it. They were going to name me Muhammad. When they saw I was a girl, they decided to name me Muhammadiya the female version of the name Muhammad. Now, Muhammad is a great name. It's the name of a prophet. Being named Muhammadiya is like being named Smurfette. <laughs> Luckily, the doctors told my parents I was going to drop dead, and they didn't want to waste such a great name on a dead baby. So instead, they named me Maysoon. Where are my Arabic speakers? Clap if you speak Arabic. <laughs> Who knows what Maysoon means? Don't say warda. That's what they always say when no one knows what an Arabic name means. They're like, it's a beautiful flower. It means beautiful flower. I'm like, no. 
Maysoon means lemur, a little monkey with giant eyes. So my parents named their shaking, disabled, brown, hairy baby monkey, and I survived, alhamdulillah. <laughs> Another thing that the doctors told my parents was that I would never walk. Now, let me be crystal clear. There is absolutely no shame in not walking or using any mobility device you need. A mobility device can be anything. It can be a wheelchair, it can be a cane, it can be a walker, it can be a group of men carrying me on a big gold mattress throughout the city. Whatever it is that helps you feel more independent is what you should do and what you should use. But when I was growing up, my father was aware that I was going to be spending half my life in the United States and half my life in Palestine. So it was very important for him to teach me how to walk. And he had a mantra, and his mantra was, you can do it, yes you can, can. And he had two different ways for teaching me. The first was he would place my feet on his feet and he would just walk. I walked miles on that man's shoes or since it's Abu Dhabi, I walked kilometers on that man's shoes. His second technique was to dangle a dollar bill in front of me and have me chase it. My inner stripper was so strong <laughs> that I was running in stilettos by kindergarten. My parents treated me exactly the same way that they treated my sisters. I was equal in every way. So if they were required to get A's at school, I was required to get A's at school. If they were helping my mom and dad clean, I too had to clean. And I remember the first time I ever played the disability card. The disability card is when you use your disability to get out of stuff you don't wanna do. And my mother was like, it's time to clean. And I said, mommy, I can't clean, I'm disabled. And she said, oh yes, you can, can. And she put a towel under my butt and had me go and do the entire kitchen floor like this. <sighs> In addition to my parents treating me equally, my parents had to fight for me. When I entered school in the United States at the age of five, the superintendent informed my parents that I would not be allowed to go to the same public school as my sisters. They decided that they would send me to a school for children with Down syndrome. The assumption was that if you had a physical disability, you also had an intellectual disability. So my parents had to fight for me. And I will never forget the day my father marched me into the principal's office, my feet on his feet, and he stood up and he said, Mr. Kalagraki, in the name of Allah, if you send her to the special school, I will suit you. Now. I am not quite sure if Mr. Calagreco thought my father had dressed threatened to shoot him, but I know that when an angry Arab man walks into your office with his disabled daughter on his toes, invoking the name of Allah, you better listen. <laughs> so I went to public school. 
And if I had not gone to public school, I would not be here at the Institute giving this talk right now. Education is the key to power. And we must ensure that anywhere on earth, and especially in the Arab world, that people with disabilities, regardless of whether it's physical or intellectual, have an equal right to education. Technology has become our friend. The internet has freed so many people who had no way to communicate, who had no access to an extremely inaccessible world before. People with disabilities who were nonverbal can now write entire blogs, can communicate what is happening in their mind, can relay the message that they are not infantile and that we are equal. But unfortunately, the internet also has a dark side. I grew up in New Jersey. It's a town, and, and my town was extremely diverse. There were 33,000 Italian Catholics and six Arabs who were all my family. Now the town has changed a lot. Now there's 33,000 Arabs and 33,000 Italian Catholics and 20 Arabs who are still all my family. But I was never bullied. I was never made fun of. I was never treated as an other. The word Muslim wasn't a slur used by a desperate orange politician who wanted to gain points. My friends would take me to midnight mass and they would show me off and they would say, she's from where Jesus is from. And I would say, I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> and when I grew up, I had a dream. And my dream was to be on a musalsal, a soap opera. And my parents had told me to dream big, and I did. And I went to college to pursue my dream, which brings me to the next topic, dreaming big. We in the Arab world, whether born here or imported, have a problem with dreaming big. So I'm here to tell you, dream big and have no fear. Don't worry about what other people think of your dream. If they think it's in, it, that you can't achieve it, if they think that it's silly, if they think that it's dangerous, it's not their dream. Don't let anyone dictate where you are going. And if your dream turns into a nightmare, find another dream. It's okay, you don't have to keep hanging on to it. My dream was to become an actress, but when I turned on American television, I realized something. And what I realized was, people with disabilities were missing from media, whether it was film, television, or news. We are the largest minority in the world, and by far the most underrepresented in media. And there's a saying in, in the States, we say if you can't see it, you can't be it. There is a large amount of fear surrounding disability. People are afraid that they might join us one day because we are, by far, the coolest group in the world. You can join at any time, whether you want to or not. There's no admission fee. It doesn't matter what race, religion, gender, orientation, or economic class you are. We welcome you all. Um, and this apparently terrifies people. And another thing that terrifies people is the idea of having a disabled child. 
I always say to parents before they become parents, I always say to young couples, don't get pregnant if you're not ready to have a disabled child. We are not unnatural. We are not an anomaly. We are one-fifth of the population. And people need to not fear us. What's the first thing that you say when you see someone who's pregnant? You say, inshallah, it's healthy. And of course, you do want them to be healthy. But being disabled is not the equivalent of being unhealthy. Most people want me to be cured far more than I want myself to be cured. Having cerebral palsy is part of who I am. And shaking all the time burns a massive amount of calories. So it's not as bad as you think. Also, at some point, every single one of you in this room has dreamt of being disabled. Oh, yes, you have. Come on a journey with me. It's aid. You're driving around. You're looking for parking. And what do you see? A hundred empty handicap spaces. And you're like, God, can I just be a little disabled? Like, By the way, um, I, I found a place in Abu Dhabi that can heal me. Have you guys seen this leaning, leaning tower? You know about the leaning tower? I think it's like a Hyatt hotel. It's Mayan Mail. It's like really leaning. And I went into it and I was straight. <laughs> well, if I live there, I'll be healed. Um, but as I said, I have 99 problems and palsy is just one. And the other universal issue is being a woman. First of all, we in the Arab world, as women, need to start showing solidarity. Those of us who don't cover our hair, judge those of us who do cover our hair. Those of us who do cover our hair, sometimes judge those of us who don't cover our hair. So I have two suggestions. Number one, mind your own dean. You understand? That means don't come and haram police me. Pay attention to your own religion, worry about your own salvation, and I'll worry about mine. To be honest, I have a one-way ticket to heaven. In Islam, we believe that if you help disabled people, you get points. They're called hasanat. I help disabled people every single day. I brush my teeth, I brush my hair, I get dressed. I'm going to heaven, people. Have you guys heard about the Haram police? The Haram police exist on Facebook. The Haram police are people who police your Facebook posts and come on to tell you that you are going to hell. I happen to love Christmas. I'm a Christmas-loving Muslim. I have to. I'm Palestinian, and as we discussed, Jesus is from Palestine, much like me. And so I, I wrote on Facebook about how excited I was about Christmas. And this woman named Fatma came on my page and she said, Maysoon, I love you very much. I believe this is Fatma's accent, but she could be from Peru, who knows? <laughs> and she said, but this kermising 
this kermising that you insist on doing is gonna make you go straight to hell. And I was like, but Fatma, you know, Jesus is a prophet in Islam and like I'm clear about who his father is or isn't depending on your faith, you know. So I don't really think I'm going to hell for getting a couple of gifts. And she was like, Maysoon, this is not funny. You must stop kermising. And so I was like, listen, Fatma, Let's change the subject just for a second. How's your husband's liquor store doing? <laughs> and she said, without missing a beat, Alhamdulillah, we're so busy because of Christmas. <laughs> Violence against women is acceptable. It's excused. 25% of women worldwide, worldwide, regardless of if you're in America, South America, Africa, or the Middle East, 25% of women will experience violence in their lifetime. That number is tripled, tripled, if a person has a disability. People with disabilities face an enormous, enormous amount of violence. It has gotten so rampant that there is actually a day of mourning worldwide for people with disabilities who have been killed by their caretakers. And we are the only children whose murders are excused. When a woman or a man murders their disabled child, the news stories that follow say things like, she was at the end of her rope, they didn't have community support, or the one that horrifies me the most, that child is better off dead. We are not better off dead. We are better off being treated as equals. That means in your business place, you must employ people with disabilities. And you must make sure that not only are they employed, but that they have access to everything they need to do their job correctly. I am not a comedian because I have a disability. I'm a comedian who happens to have a disability. The talent exists. The knowledge exists, but the accessibility does not exist. It goes beyond having ramps. It's great to have a ramp, but if I have cerebral palsy and you put me on a ramp, I roll right down it. So what's accessible for one person is not necessarily accessible for another. Every single event you should do, and NYU, I'm not here to shame you, I'm just here to teach you. Every single event you, sh you do should have an interpreter at all times. You should have an interpreter for the deaf. The assumption is there are no deaf people in this room, but we do not know that. There could be someone who's hard of hearing, there could be someone who's deaf. You have the choice of having a sign language interpreter or having live captioning at every single event you do. If you create content online, if you create videos, YouTubes, anything online, always open caption it. The closed captions don't understand most people, so you have to open caption it so that, again, your work is accessible to, to everyone. If you're a builder, an architect, a person who creates space, make sure that the spaces that you create are designed accessibly and that it's not an afterthought and something that you think of later in the game when it's too late and too expensive. Make everything accessible, assuming one of two things, that someone with a disability may use it and that you may be disabled one day. 
I'm not going to say la samahallah because it's a 25% chance and we need to start being realistic about it and stop dealing with it as something we fear. And one of the best ways I think we can do that is by having more positive images of disability in media. We need more anchors on the news that are either blind or deaf or have some sort of disability. We need children's programming to include people with disabilities. Sesame Street has been on television for 40 years. This year was the first time they had a disabled Muppet. Her name is Julia and she has autism. Do you guys know who Dora the Explorer is? Clap if you know Dora. Oh, this is good. Here's my thought about Dora the Explorer. She has a friend named Swiper. Swiper is a fox who steals stuff. And then Dora says, Swiper, no swiping. What if we chop his arm off and make him an amputee so that kids aren't scared of people missing appendages? <laughs> the Arab world is horrified because that would actually happen to Swiper here. I understand. In America, it's a hell of a joke. But here you were like, yes. Swiper should definitely have his arms chopped off. I see. I'm going to put that one in my pocket. So being a Muslim woman is really interesting. And as I mentioned before, right now in America, um, we have an orange nightmare in, in charge of us. I, I have a bunch of names for him, but unfortunately, none of them are appropriate for this setting. So if you would like to hear me curse at him, please go online to maysoon.com, and you can hear all my special names. But as a result, what has happened is Muslims in America are facing a massive amount of bigotry, hate, and violence. And Muslims worldwide are on the forefront of violence from terrorism, violence from bigotry, violence from each other. But in America, my life has completely changed. Since July 15th of 2017, I have gotten death threats daily every single day because the idea that Muslims are not American, that we're terrorists, that we're performing something called taqiyya. Now, I didn't know what taqiyya was until I got accused of it. And I was like, taqiyya? I like a good hat. And <laughs> apparently, taqiyya is when Muslims pretend to be good and then they cut your head off. So I was like, I don't have that kind of coordination. But they didn't really listen to me. So right now, women who wear hijab in America are at the forefront of violence. I can walk down the street and they don't know that I'm Muslim. I mean, look at me. I could easily be the lost Kardashian. But my sisters in America who are brave enough to choose to wear hijab can't hide who they are, nor do they want to hide who they are. So I know that although we are equal, they are at the forefront of violence. And that's why I support anything a woman chooses to wear. The word that's most important in that sentence is choice. If you choose to wear a bikini, Bravo alich. If you choose to wear a burqa, I'm gonna clap for you too. Burqa to bikini, as long as it's your choice, I am with you. Let women control their bodies. Let women control their fate. And, my, and I remind you once again, mind your own deen.
Which brings me to Falastin. I grew up in the great state of New Jersey, and every single summer when my friends would go down the shore, my parents would send me to live in a war because they were afraid that if I didn't go to Palestine every single year, I would grow up to be Britney Spears and I would forget my roots. So every year my parents would send us back to, to Palestine. And um, I loved going back there as a child because it was wedding season. See, everyone from my village, Der Dewan, they all live in America. And every summer, they gather their children of marrying age, and they send them back to Palestine to get married. So the men are like 27, 28, 29. The women are like 18, 19. They put them in a circle, the men on the outside, the women on the inside. And they have them dance around to win Allah, win Allah. And wherever the circle stops, that's who you're marrying. <laughs> so my cousin Khalid the other day saw who was across from him, and he was like, oh, no way. And his dad was like, shoo, no way. This is your nasib. You have to marry her. And he was like, dad, I can't. And he was like, oh, yes, you can, and you gonna. And my cousin was like, she's my sister. So we had to reset the whole circle. Um, so when I turned 33, I decided to catch a husband. And I know this is shocking to a lot of people, because the myth is that people with disabilities are eternal, happy, sunshine babies, and that we never grow up, we never get married, we don't have thoughts, and we don't have emotions. This is not true. People with disabilities have every right to get married, and they have every right to have children. It is not your business to tell someone with a genetic disorder or any hereditary disability that they don't have a right to have children. This world is not better if we don't have people with Down syndrome or don't have little people or don't have people with any other disability. We exist and we add to this world. And just because it's not for you doesn't mean that they can't be great parents with great children. I happen to be very lucky in that my disability is not genetic, and a bonus, I can't have kids, so I don't have to deal with any of this. Instead, I have a cat, and her name is Beyonce, and we're going to talk about her shortly. So, at the age of 33, I decided to catch a husband, because it was my Jesus year, and I either had to get married or martyred. And I decided that I would get married because I had been a bridesmaid 17 times. And I had spent $28,000 on my wedding. Uh, I had spent $28,000 being a bridesmaid. That's like 60,000 dirham. And I wanted to make my money back, right? So I needed to catch a husband. Not because I was desperate. If I could have married white, I would have married this guy named Mike. But my father said that if I didn't marry a Palestinian, he would throw himself off of a bridge. So I needed to find a Palestinian. And I couldn't do what my parents did because I am way too disabled to inbreed. This is the part of the conversation where I tell you, say no to cousin love. The number one cause of disability in the Arab world is cousins marrying. It was okay to marry your cousin when you had to ride a camel for six weeks to find someone you weren't related to. Now we have nasib.com. Fix yourselves. 
Now, I couldn't go on lostleep.com because typing's not my thing. So, do you guys want to know where I, where I found my husband? Do you want to know where I found my husband? I went to Gaza. And the reason I went to Gaza is because they got no place to run. Yep. I framed my American passport in a big gold frame, and I walked through that refugee camp going, you want a visa, baby? And my husband was like, yeah. So I'm like, pack up your stuff. Let's go. And he's like, I have no stuff. So I pack him up. I bring him back to America. I get to America, and I immediately have buyer's remorse because I remember him being taller and having two eyebrows. So I didn't want to hurt his feelings, so I went up to him and I was like, Habibi, in America we have two eyebrows. And he goes, you know when I'm going to have two eyebrows? I'm going to have two eyebrows when there will be two states. Yani no settlement freezing means no eyebrow tweezing. So I'm like, okay. So I just shaved it when he was asleep. Now he has one on one side. Um, <laughs> teaches you, listen to me. So on my wedding, I was really excited, be, not for what you think, Mosachim. Um, I was, yeah, I saw you, yellow shirt. I saw that. Um, I was really excited because when you're a bridesmaid 17 times and you're single, they make you catch a bouquet. And like catching is not my thing. So I would walk out on the dance floor and be like, it's not bad enough, I'm single, you have to throw stuff at me. So at my wedding, instead of throwing it backwards, I threw the flowers forward, because even though I'm palsy, I'm not good at catching. I'm Palestinian, I'm really good at throwing stuff. I took out, I took out seven bridesmaids in one shot. I was like, yeah, and they were gone. Um, anyway. <laughs> Back to marriage. Um, I have a really good marriage, say mashallah, because I know how to solve conflicts. And what I do is I lovingly look at my husband, who I call chef because he's a refugee and a chef, so he's a chef <laughs> And anytime we have a fight, I just, I look at him with like so much love and I say, do you want to go back? <laughs> You want to go back to Gaza? There's no Dunkin' Donuts in Gaza. Um, where are my single people at? Clap, clap. Married people. Single. Married. Single. Married. Divorced. Always the happiest people in the room. Always. Um, we in the Middle East are obsessed with marriage and babies, and this has got to stop. Single people, listen to me. Marriage is a racket. Avoid it at all costs. Married people are just trying to suck you down into their hell. They have worked on this so hard that the LGBTQ community wants to get married so they can torture them too. <laughs> If you must get married, wait until after you're 27. Before the age of 27, your brain is squishy. You can't make a decision that big. Marriage is a life sentence, and you have to choose your cellmate wisely. <laughs> Number one, say no to cousin love. Number two, find an orphan. <laughs> the rest of them come with families, and you don't want that. But this is really important. 
We have been taught to fear being alone. And I know so many people that stay in violent, abusive relationships because that they believe that being married, being with someone is so much better than being alone that they allow themselves to be dehumanized and abused. It is far better to be alone and hang out with a cat than to spend day and night with a human being who makes you hate yourself. So don't let anyone in the world ever make you feel like you are less because you're not married or because you don't have children. If it's something that you want, great. And I know how hard it is in this society. So what I do is when people come up to me and ask me if, they, if I have kids, I show them a picture of my cat. They don't know what to do, and they walk away quietly. Um, but I made the mistake of marrying a non-orphan. Um, so my brother, my brother, what happened there? My, 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 I've been in the Arab world one day too long. Um, <laughs> Chef Uji is one of uh, six boys, and all five of his brothers have been shot, and all five have survived. They live in a refugee camp in Palestine. It's like, that's what happens. So all five have been shot, all five have survived. I picked the one that had never been shot. Because I knew that if I ever got really angry, he could run and save himself. So, unfortunately, I picked one that has a mother. And um, I feel really bad for her. I do, I do. I genuinely feel bad for her. I've been married for seven years, say mashallah. And uh, she has never been allowed to visit him in the United States. She's never been able to get a visa because they have her on a terror watch list because I put her there. <laughs> and it wasn't a false report because she terrorizes me. When I got married, I explained to my mother-in-law that I, I can't have kids. If I get pregnant, I will drop dead. And I remember watching this movie where the character couldn't have kids and she tried to get pregnant and she said, I'd rather have a moment of joy than a lifetime of nothing. And I was like, I'll take the lifetime of nothing, thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you, lifetime. Um, so every time my mother-in-law calls, she asks the same question. Are you pregnant? Is there a bundle in your oven? And I always tell her, I say, I have clearly told you, if I get pregnant, I will drop dead. And her response is, oh, just try once. <laughs> Do not ask random people in the street if they are pregnant. Don't do it. This is a super bad habit in the Middle East. I, I was just in Palestine before I came to Abu Dhabi. People who shake my hand look at my stomach. And I have one of those bodies that could easily be five months pregnant year-round every year since I was five. So they would look at my stomach and I'd be like, my eyes are up here. Don't ask people if they have kids. Don't ask people if they're pregnant. Unless you are possibly the mother or father, it is none of your goddamn business. <laughs> you don't know who you're talking to. We really do think it's okay. The first question I always get is, are you married? And when I say yes, they go, really? And then, after, then the very next question is, do you have kids? Number one, 
not your business. You do not know what any other human being goes through. Maybe this is someone who's been trying to get pregnant for 10 years and hasn't been able to. Maybe it's somebody who miscarried last night and you don't know it. Maybe they had a baby and that baby died. It is not your business whether people have children or not. It's time that you stop torturing women and treating them like cows and treat them like human beings. Unless it's yours, it's not your business. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.